Welcome to Sports Lit. I'm Neil Acharya. And I am Nathan Sager. Today we welcome Steve Simmons. He released A Lucky Life, Gretzky, Crosby, Kawhi, and more from the best seat in the house through Triumph Books on November 8th. This book is a collection of columns and features of over nearly 45 years in covering pro sports. As a content warning and trigger warning, we will be asking our guest about one of his books that involved a court case that was centered on sexual violence involving you know, junior hockey players in Canada, which of course has been a big topic in the news throughout this year. Uh, it might be tough for people to get through, and we understand that. Just please know that you are valued and loved, and there are supports out there. Steve Simmons has been a sports writer for 43 years, first at the Calgary Herald, then Calgary Sun, followed by a move to Toronto in 1987, where he has been for the past 35 years at the Toronto Sun. As his bio states, Simmons is one of Canada's best known and most provocative sports columnists. His work moves the dial, especially the widely read Sunday Notes column. You may recognize him from his time on TSN's The Reporters, and as for his authorship, Steve has written four books and collaborated on six more. The one that stands out is The Lost Dream from 2011. That's the story of Mike Danton, David Frost, and a broken Canadian family. On November 8th of this year, he released a collection of columns and features from a career in a book from his career in a book titled A Lucky Life. As he says, Nate, he has written over 9,000 columns, and this represent, represents 1% of his work. But this list is personal. Indeed, and journal, uh, daily journalism is called the first draft of history, and he has been supplying it on deadline for three and a half decades in the, I guess, more downs than ups Toronto sports world. He's willing to be the uh, word-working world's, i got to pick one hockey analogy here, Abed, shift disturber, sandpaper guy sometimes, but fortune favors the bold, and Simmons is willing to ask that pointed question. That can sometimes, you know, get everything into a whole discussion about who holds the lens matters. To borrow a phrase from our recent guest, Howard Bryant, but it gets people going. The side of Simmons that I enjoy are the personal stories that reminds the reader that sports is about the people and what they give up to be in that arena, what it takes out of them, you know, to, to just, you know, get want a little more to always want, want to have to win. Uh, that's what, you know, I follow sports for and, I think a lot of people do, although, you know, it is a results-based business and we tend to ride and die on the win wins or losses. We should let the reader, should we let the listener know that we're recording this hours after that Buffalo Bills-Minnesota Vikings game? <laughs> uh, but that is the good stuff uh, that, you know, many writes some of us and some of those pieces are here from Steve Simmons in A Lucky Life. And, that, you know, it's good to keep that in mind on the days when, you know, we're being pushed to go play in the mud. 
guilty as charged now. His name certainly draws a reaction, Nate, as you, as you mentioned, uh, from sports fans. I'm sure when you told people we're having on the podcast, there was an immediate reaction. Unlike any of our other previous, uh, let's say, 45, 44 or so guests over 52 or so episodes, um, you know, his name his name definitely draws a reaction. Um now, in the in this page, in the pages of a lucky life, uh, there are those stories that that really do do that and move the dial. And there are also others, uh, like you said, that, that, that stir emotion, and they're written with uh, a really evident and, and and present sensitivity, such as uh, the faded view of Terry Evanson, uh, the CFL player, which was published 29 years ago this month. And Steve, just like you, uh, Nate, has a soft spot for the CFL, and, and there there's plenty included about uh, about the the Canadian Football League in these pages um but i won't tell you about that story you'll have to read the book um back to the pro uh, provocative pieces he hasn't shied away from including those either such as uh sickness cured kessel gone uh also known as the hot dog story so yes we will be asking him about that about that and a particularly uh recent um i guess controversy resulting from uh, one of his uh, Sunday Notes columns involving um, a hockey player. You can listen in to find out about that. Um, and, uh, you know, then there's also the media industry, the art of sports writing and how it's been affected in the age of digital re- disruption. Steve's been around for a long time, so he definitely has perspective on that. Mm-hmm. And as I look away from the football scores, you know, what is, what's this about digital disruption? <laughs> uh, speaking of not shying away, I guess I did have to work through some points to where I could compartmentalize man in order to do this episode and it had nothing to do with the work of the guests it was you know where the work appears now I have great fondness for Toronto Sun sports and sports coverage across that chain where this work in this Triumph Books publication appeared I even got to be part of that for a few years in Ottawa and learned a lot about how to write tight and bright there if you think I'm long-winded these days you should have seen me before I went to work for the Ottawa Sun uh, but, you know, I'd love to stick to sports. I just want to quickly acknowledge that, you know, like while, while we were prepping for all this, I was, you know, caught up in seeing, you know, a push with that paper supporting it to a large extent, to, you know, sort of take away public goods in Ontario, education, healthcare, charter rights, and not least of all the farmland protections and wetland complexes we need to manage the climate emergency so that we can keep the nice things such as sports, which I want for my young nephew and niece who are both under the age of six and i'm just summing up the last two weeks in november in ontario but again i speak only with my voice here with that out of the way i will stick to sports today there were just a, a lot of strands inside sags's head those are your thoughts yes nate um and before we get to our guest i will just say that this podcast is about the guest and their book and whoever you are and whatever you read out there sports lit is for you and for intelligent conversation. Steve Simmons, after the break. And we're back on Sports Lit. It's a pleasure to be joined by Steve Simmons. We're going to talk about a lucky life today, his new his new book, which came out on November 8th. And Nate, why don't you lead us off with the first question? Sure, Neil. Uh, welcome, Steve. Uh, I guess so much of what one does in daily journalism, you know, it's it's a it's a grind, and you go home at the end of the day with a feeling of a job done. But what's how's the sensation, uh, the satisfaction, maybe a little bit different when you go go see your name wherever fine books are sold? 
Well, there there is something about a book, and I, I don't know if I can explain it properly to people who haven't written them, but it, it's kind of the equivalent of a man having a baby, um, <laughs> and and you 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 want to hold it, and you, you want to stroke it, and you want to cuddle <laughs> with it, and and that's the that's the first time you take it out of the box and you see it. And, and this book I'm particularly fond of because I think the publisher did a fantastic job on, on just what it looks like. They did a beautiful mm. front cover. And so you, there's that process you go through. And then there's the process of, of every author I know has done this. You go into the bookstore and you move your book. <laughs> you see where they've put it and you don't like it and you change it. And now suddenly you're on Heather's favorite list for at least that <laughs> afternoon. Um, and, and so I've already done that um, once uh, at, at an indigo near my house. And I know my friend, John Shannon, who has a book out, uh, did it with both of our books in Edmonton. And, and I was happy for that as well. And I suspect I'll be in more bookstores, moving books around and, and, uh, making sure that people can see it because sometimes, you know, where you are in the bookstore and how prominent the book is can be the most important thing is always word of mouth. But I think after word of mouth and word of social media and word of online stuff, you know where it where you can find it in the store is always a a matter of of importance. I gotta I gotta ask you before Nate jumps in. Um, I'm just interjecting before he follows with a question that I know he has. Um, I I like to ask this every now and then to some of our guests because we are sports lit, and so it's always either athletes or or authors um, that are talking about sports books. And uh, there's a huge amount of competition. You have to be competitive to be a an athlete at, at, at the NHL level or at any high level. So are you competitive? Like when are you looking, are you call, calling your publisher up and trying to find out numbers? And if you're better than John Shannon's book right now, are you selling more? Is that an issue for you or not an issue, but something you do? Well, I think everyone does it and you don't even have to call <laughs> them up anymore. I think you can go on Amazon and places like that and see like, where is your book ranked and how many people, how many people have bought it on the website and how many people have ordered it and, and they put it in categories. So, you know, for a sports book, it'll be ranked, you know, whatever the number is. So I looked the other day, just out of curiosity on, on the day it officially went on sale. I think I was 36,000 um, yeah. on, on the bestseller list. And, uh, but some people had already ordered it, which was kind of nice. And, and, you know, years ago, I, I wrote Lanny McDonald's book, in 1987. And I guess I can say this now, it's not a very good book. <laughs> but boy, did it sell. And boy, did it sell very well. And, you know, it's sold. And people don't buy books today the way they did in, in the late 80s. It sold, I think, 39,000 in hardcover and 66,000 in softcover. And if I can go anywhere to with a tenth of all that, with this book, I'll be doing cartwheels. Well, that's a question I, I actually, because you're because you're mentioning, I have had, I've had, and I've asked others in the past. You know, the the business of writing a book is is must have changed greatly, and 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 that goes from everywhere from like maybe the advance. I know Nate. Remember Roy McGregor told us, or at least he wrote in one of his books about just how much he got for an advance back in the day versus now, um, or something like that. So yeah, how has the business of writing a book changed? Well, I think the of writing a sports book as such is, is, and I'll tell you a story about um, my book, The Lost Dream, which is a book I'm very proud of, by the way. It's the Mike Denton, David Frost story. Mm -hmm. And um, and when uh, 
I've lost my train of thought for a second. Sorry. When it was I, the, biz, the business, yeah, the business of writing books. And then, yeah. yeah you were, and when I wrote it, I was extremely pleased and proud of it. And the numbers just never showed to what I thought it should be or would be um, in, in terms of that. So you have, to, you have to take a different approach and just think, you know, I've done all this work. I've put it together. And, and the late Frank Orr told me years ago, you're never going to get paid by the hour on this. You're never, if, you, if you think this is what number of hours I put in and this is the money I'm going to get out of it, if you think you're going to make money, you're just kidding yourself. And yeah, I made money on the Lanny McDonald book and I probably lost money, although I didn't officially lose money on the lost dream. But um, for the number of hours and the time I put into it, you know, I would have been about 30 cents an hour, I think. <laughs> yeah. And of course, Frank Orr had that uh, book. I think it was called Puck is a Four Letter Word. Um, and, and, I, 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 by the way, Steve, I can confidently report the Coles in the Jackson Square in ha downtown Hamilton. A Lucky Life and John Shannon's book were on the top shelf, so I'm going to assume Stephen Brunt's uh, <laughs> snuck in there on your behalf. What I wanted to ask, I noticed, you, what, what I loved, I did love the design of the book, but I noticed a quote right in the inside is from the uh, novelist Philip Roth, and I think the first novel I ever got out of like the university library on my own, not assigned for class, which meant, meant there was a chance I would actually read it, was uh, The Great American Novel. And timeline-wise, you would have been a teenager when that was published. It is a satirical baseball novel. I just wondered if what the, how deep was the connection there with Philip Roth for you? Well, Philip Roth wrote Portnoy's Complaint, which was for somebody who loved to read and loved to write. It was sort of the equivalent of, of literature and pornography all at the same time. And so for a young guy, that was a pretty exciting thing. And then I've read some other other books by him. And he's just he's one of so many writers that I look you know up to and forward to reading. And and so when I saw that quote, I can't remember where I got it from. But when I saw it, I said, you know, this is my life. This is what my life has been. You know, every day you're trying to be better. And I think Dave Steve's book was called Tomorrow I'll Be Perfect. Mm -hmm. yes. um, you know, I think that's what columnists think, too. You know, I'm writing today. Tomorrow I'll be better. And that's, you know, there's a certain insecurity always that I think every writer has. You want someone to tell you this is really good or I really liked your work. Um, but you're you're hoping to hear that. And you go on to the next day hoping that tomorrow will be better than it was today. And and that that ties into this this book here, a lucky life, right? You chose you, you at the end. You write, hey, I, I've this is this represents one percent of my work. I've written over nine thousand columns and features. Um, so I guess two part question. We're all journalists here, right? So two part questions are bad. So let me just ask the first question. <laughs> and how did you decide on what you would have in this in this book? Well, this thing started when a group of friends were hanging around, not sports people, just people that are friends of ours. Uh, where were you when Kennedy was assassinated? And where were you when Man on the Moon? And when were you when this historical thing happened? And then we started talking about sort of life after Paul Henderson's goal. And it was where were you when Crosby scored or Alomar hit the home run or Kawhi hit the shot or Donovan Bailey won. And it started to hit me. Well, I was there when Alomar hit the home run, and I was there when Carter hit the home run, and I was there when Bailey won the two 100 meters in, in Atlanta. And, you know, and I started realizing, boy, you were there for a lot of things. And then you looked at the history of it all, and it was like 
this, this could be a book. Mm. And so um, that's where, where it started from. And then, and then I thought, well, there has to be a historical nature to it. So, you know, the Crosby goal is in there and the Kawhi jump shot is in there and the Alamar, the, you know, to me, it's five Blue Jay home runs, but I don't have them all on the book, but there's five that are, are, you know, the most important in, in, in team history. And you can go through all of these things and, you know, whether it's Usain Bolt or, or whomever it is you're writing about, there's a lot of history that's happened over, over a 40 year period that I've worked. And I was fortunate enough to be, you know, on assignment at all of those things. And so I also thought to myself, no one else was. Like, I've been lucky to be a general columnist, which meant I was never sort of stuck to any one thing. It means I could write hockey when hockey's going on and baseball when baseball's going on and the Olympics when the Olympics is going on. And so I was able to get to so many places and so many areas. So I got to see all the basketball highlights and the baseball highlights and the football Super Bowl and the Grey Cups and all those things. I thought, well, I'm going to sort of throughout the book, you know, tell these stories along with other things that I wanted to, to tell. And, and, and one of the things that I found, it's reading a column or a feature that you wrote um, 10 or 20 or 30 years later is like going to the movies. You know, you, you know, you might see a movie you loved in, in 1985 or 1990 and you watch it now and you think, boy, that didn't age well. And it's the same with writing, I think. I mean, I saw pieces that I thought would be terrific and they didn't age well. And so that's what I kind of cut out. And then you you write, you put in what you think you should put in. And there's some back and forth with the editors. You know, do you like this better than do you like that? Oh, I don't know if we, fighting isn't the right word, but. We had conversations about which piece should be in and which piece should be out. And then you find, you think after the fact, boy, I, f I wish I had that one in it. And I forgot about this one. And I forgot about that one. Um, we had a baseball, we had a baseball writer at the sun named Bob Elliott. Yes. Who, um, <laughs> who is the only Canadian uh, in the baseball hall of fame for media. Mm -hmm. And I wrote a column on his retirement. And to be honest, from the moment I, I love Bob, but from the moment I wrote the column, I went on to the next day. And sometimes you forget about the column you wrote a year ago or two years ago or five years, whatever it is. And I ran into Tim Warnsby, who used to work for The Sun, I think had a book out last year. Mm. You may have had him on here. Um, and Tim said, well, I hope you have the Bob Elliott column in your book. Uh. He said, which Bob Elliott column? Like I, for a minute, <laughs> I had to stop and think, what did I write on Bob? And I went back and read it. And he said, I think that's the best column you've ever written. And I went back and read it, and it was darn, I was darn happy with it. And then I'm unhappy that it wasn't in the book. Um, my favorite one that's not in the book is a piece on a hockey player named Tom McCarthy. Oh, yeah. May, may or may not know that name. Yeah, um, was that with the this Florida incident? Is that the, with the no, TV station? No, you have it mixed up with... Um, Spinner oh, Spencer. That's my Brian bad. Spencer. Sorry. Go uh, ahead. Tom please. McCarthy was drafted ahead of Wayne Gretzky in the OHL draft. Tells you the kind of talent he had mm. and was a first round pick of the Minnesota North Stars who, who kind of bungled his NHL career, didn't take hockey very seriously, didn't train, didn't, you know, just wasn't mm. meant to be a pro athlete. Um, right. And he got arrested uh, at the end of his career or maybe right after his career ended for running drugs. He was driving drugs across state lines in the United States. Hmm. And didn't he, it says he didn't even know what he was doing. He was just driving things for people and for friends. 
And turns out he was running drugs. And when you cross straight lines in the United States, that's a federal crime. That's a serious crime. Right. So Tom McCarthy wound up in Leavenworth, Kansas, in, in prison, which is serious, serious time. And he's in, in there. He goes to the warden and says, I'd like to start a weekly hockey game. The warden says, like, are you out of your mind? I'm going to give hockey sticks to the most hardened <laughs> criminals in America? Like, that's not happening. But somehow <laughs> McCarthy stayed on him, and, and he finally got a weekly hockey. It wasn't a game to start. It was hockey lessons. And I think they used pla- those little plastic sticks we used to use right. in class years ago. Yeah. And, um, and what happened was is Tom McCarthy, who hated the NHL and whose career did not end well, um, fell in love with hockey again in prison, teaching people who have never seen hockey. The majority of the inmates in Leavenworth were either Hispanic or black. And, and uh, most of them, he said, had never seen or even heard of hockey. Like it wasn't something that had come into their lives. And here he was every Saturday morning and the weekly hockey game became, if you had a good week in prison, you got to play, you got, you got to go to the hockey game. That was like, you know, the handout that week. And he became one of the most popular guys in Leavenworth. And when he came out of prison and got sent back to Canada, he was extradited. Um, he wound up coaching in the Ontario Provincial League and coaching in the GTHL because he had fallen back in love with the game, teaching inmates how to play. And I, I just love this. I think it's a, it should be a movie. I think someone should, it's kind of like <laughs> the lost, oh, what's that movie with Burt Reynolds? Oh, The Longest Yard. The Longest Yard. <laughs> the hockey version of The Longest Yard without comedy, because he did serious, serious time in this place. The uh, You know, I do remember that now, and I've just looked it up. It's uh, The Strange Saga of Tom McCarthy Should Never Be Forgotten. It's from April 14, 2022. That, that's the one I wrote after he died. But I, oh. had, I had interviewed him after he got out of prison, hmm. and he told me the whole story of what happened to him, how he wound up in prison, you know, how he bunged, you know, how he ruined his career. And I, I don't know if you know Sherry Bassett, who used to run the Oshawa General yep. Erie Otters. Uh, Sherry hmm. had him in Oshawa, and the hmm. first year in the NHL, Lou Nanny is calling Sherry, saying, "What's with your boy Tom McCarthy?" And Lou and Sherry saying, "What do you mean, my boy? He, he's your boy now." <laughs> And, and basically it's, you know, he's late for practice or he misses practice or whatever. So Sherry calls McCarthy up and says, Tommy, like, what's going on? He says, Sherry, they're crazy here. They practice in the mornings. I can't get to morning. <laughs> you know, I'm not. Up in time. That, that was Tom McCarthy. That's yeah, awesome. Go ahead, Nate. My, my, my friend, Chris Dawson, who's up at the Powassan Voodoo's in the Northern Ontario Junior Hockey League. He got to know Tom when Tom coached up there and, yeah, he'll 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 love hearing about this. You mentioned, uh, uh, you know, talking about you know memorable Blue Jays home runs. We had Jerry Howarth as a guest a few years ago too. How much uh, does that creating a historical record like this, Steve, maybe help counteract some recency bias? Because I've seen lists where people put the Jose Batista home run ahead of <laughs> Alomar's, and well, there's nearly a bat flip in my apartment when that happens. And also, Nate, before you answer that, not just before. Um, before uh, Alomar, before uh, anything that happened in the 92 World Series, as we saw in a recent uh, Sports Center top 10. Well, <laughs> we hate to believe you know, that. One but... of the nice things about being old is that you got to see a lot. And in my case, I got to see a lot up close. And so I covered the 90 and 91 and 92 Blue Jays on a pretty regular basis. And I was in Oakland the afternoon that. Alomar hit the home run off Dennis Eckersley. And to put this in context, at the time, 
the Blue Jays were considered to be chokers. They had a good team from 85 right up to 92. And every year something went wrong, excuse me, or you know, they had the, the breakdown in 87 when they lost all those games at the end of the season. And then, you know, managers changed and they got, got fired and things happened. And so here they are in Oakland, team that's had their number, and they're, it's Robbie Alomar, the Jays are losing, and Dennis Eckersley, the best reliever in the game, is on the mound for Oakland. And he's making faces at the Jays' dugout and fist pumps and the whole thing. And here's Alomar, you know, for my money, the greatest Blue Jays player we've ever had mm. or, or the team's ever had. And uh, he gets up there and he, and he hits the home run. And to me, that home run made the 92 World Series possible because I'm not sure they beat Oakland if he doesn't hit that home run. And I'm not sure they have that inner confidence. Ed Sprague then hits a home run in game two of the World Series. By the way, also more important than the bat flip home run. <laughs> um, that, that if the Jays go down 2 nothing in Atlanta, I don't think they're coming back to beat Atlanta 4 or 5 with that Braves pitching staff with Glavin and Smoltz and, and Avery. Um, it, it just wasn't going to happen. But when Sprague hit the home run, it's now 1-1. It's coming back to Toronto for, for three, and it, ch it changed the whole setup of the World Series. So first the Alomar home run, then the Sprague home run. And then there is no 93 if there isn't a 92. So we wouldn't have had the, the Carter home run without it. Uh, and then you get into the modern history with Edwin Encarnacion and, and Jose Batista. For a motion, in, in the context of today, the bat flip is obviously huge. But even back then, when I read the piece that I wrote about Alomar and the home run, it gives me goosebumps. And your own stories don't often give you goosebumps. <laughs> but this one did because I captured not only the home run, but 30 years ago, I captured what it would mean today. And I didn't know doing it at the time that you're doing that. You're writing, this is going to be historical. Well, you don't really know when you're writing it that that's going to be historical, but you write that nonetheless because you believe it in the moment. And the fact that I think, I think it's more powerful as a piece today than it might have been even back in 92. It's certainly one that's uh, just stood out to me for sure in reading this. Uh, Nate, go ahead. Oh, yeah. I, I just wondered, how did you get down to uh, these are the 90 columns that are going to be in the book? Like, it's, it's out of 9,000. <laughs> well, I first started with a list of historical events, things that mattered to me, things that, you know, have stayed with me. So I had to have the Donovan Bailey, you know, win in Atlanta. I had to have the Kawhi Leonard, you know, bounce, 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 jump shot. I had to have Raptors winning a championship because it's the only major championship Toronto has won since 92. I had to have, you know, certain things that I was at that meant something. Usain Bolt took my breath away in, in the Olympics in Beijing. And again, after that, I wound up going to all nine of his races where he won gold medals in each one of them, except one of them I think has since been taken away because of a relay positive test by one of the other people in his group. But I started with the historic, historical point of view, and then it was just trying to test your memory or what do you remember. And I started, and the way our library works, it's that we have a digital library. It only goes back to 1990. So I was disappointed that I couldn't go further back to find things that I was really looking for. Okay. And I had, when I left the Calgary Herald in 1987, I can say this now, I stole my file. 
um, where they, they used to keep clipping files in those days. And so I had at home, you know, I could go through everything I had written for the Calgary Herald and, and, um, and, and go through that and see if I could find something. And you were just trying not to have too many things from the same year. And, and one of the things that I really wanted to, to show was the people who read me on a regular basis, especially, um, I would say, they think of me as a Sunday notes specialist. Right. Just kind of what I'm best known for. And, and also for being dash controversial or outlandish or whatever you want to call it, outspoken. Um, a provocateur? However you want to, you know, <laughs> different ways of looking at the same thing. Sure. But what, what I really wanted to do was show a side of me that really the Sunday notes doesn't show. And even the taking a shot at Brian Burke columns don't show. Um, right. You know, these were what I really liked about this. And I think that's maybe where I got back to Philip Roth. A lot of this is storytelling. A lot of this is like the first piece in the book is Wayne Gretzky's last game. Right. And it's really easy to go to Madison Square Garden for the after, Sunday afternoon for Wayne Gretzky's last game and write, here's the greatest score we've ever seen. You know, he has this many points and this many of this, and this is how the crowd cheered and blah, blah, blah. You know, that's the easy piece to write. The piece I wrote was a piece I wanted to write and wound up writing was when you're a kid, who do you go to hockey with? Your dad. Your dad or your mom, whoever, whoever gets you in the car. And before you, you know, you're, you're dressed in your equipment before you put your skates, you know, your dad ties your skates on you or your mom ties your skates on you and they put the helmet on and make sure it fits all properly and everything. Uh, what Wayne decided was he was going to go to the game. It's the last game ever. Him and his dad in the car together. That was it. You know, it was like a final, you know, sort of tribute to his father for all that he had done for him. And I was fortunate enough to have enough time to talk to Wayne after the game about it and enough time to talk to Walter after the game about it. And I just thought it was such a nice father and son hockey piece. And in the end of the day, it wasn't about the greatest scorer we've ever seen or maybe Canada's favorite hockey dad. It was just about a father and a son and a special day and a special moment. And, And I remember getting a letter after I wrote the column originally from Michael Barnett, who was the agent for Gretzky at the time, you know, thanking me for the piece that I'd written. And, and to be honest, I don't get very many of those. <laughs> it doesn't happen all that often. And I don't think very many people, you know, today, I know yeah. letters, but, but back right. in the day when people wrote letters, that, that was a good one to get. And, and he was talking about how touched the family was and the fact that they were touched and they lived through all of this, you know, really met, left me felt feeling the way you know, I wanted to feel. And Walter died just about when I started to think of this as a book. Hmm, and, right. and his death was national news. Yes. Like it was, CTV and CBC had it like lead items on their news. Mm-hmm. And I thought, if Walter Gretzky's like lead item on the news, this has to be the first column in the book. Yeah. yeah. And did, did you end up uh, uh, covering that funeral at all either? Because that was really subtly touching as well in so many ways. I did not get to cover the funeral. I think I was on a television panel mm. that day talking about Walter and 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 Wayne and what what it had, you know what he had meant to so many Canadians. The, the Nate, I'll let you go and just put, the thing that struck struck me from that was because I was working that day was just you know they didn't really tee up anything. It's a funeral, right? So it's all subdued, and then the, you know the 
the I think it's a hearse pulls out and there's all these little kids tapping their sticks that had lined the streets. So anyway, that's just what came to my mind. Go ahead, Nate. Yeah, and I also wondered, Steve, uh, I, I liked how you had sort of had the character studies in there. How, how uh, much did uh, your insight into people like, you know, the late Pat Quinn, the late Don Matthews, the CFL coach, come from just having that push pull, pull where you kind of had to work to, you know, maybe get get their respect and, uh, you know, get them to answer your questions? Well, Pat, Pat Quinn was a fascinating study because I've never met a better interview and I've never met someone who hated the media more than he did. But if you ask Pat Quinn a, a good question or even an average question, you got a great answer. And if you were, I'll use Cam Cole as an example, because Cam Cole was one of the better sports columnists in the country. And Cam, if Cam Cole asked a question that had nothing to do with the day's game, nothing to do, it was some theory he might have had that he wanted to expand upon in a column, Pat would stop and spend the next five minutes, you know, providing a terrific answer and everybody's mouths would be open at the end of it. And so, you know, interesting thing happened with Pat Quinn. Um, It was Peter Zezel's funeral, the former Leaf, Mm -hmm. who died way too soon. And, And Pat Quinn was there and his time was over coaching the Leafs at that time. And he called me and one or two of my colleagues over to the side for a minute. And he says, I just want to apologize. And I, we looked at him and said, for what? Like, it was an absolute pleasure dealing with you. He says, well, I wasn't always a really nice guy to be around. And he I, he had the self-realization after the fact that not that he was the great interview he was. I don't know if anybody ever knows that, but that he wasn't the nicest man in the world at times. And and he didn't like us. Hmm. Uh, but, but he understood enough of what he had done and, and how he had done it to come up to us at, at a meaningful event. And, and say he was sorry for, for how he behaved at times. Uh, I, I had great regard for Pat just because, uh, A, he had tremendous success, and we're not used to success as we've seen with the league <laughs> many, many years. If you look at how many playoff series he, he had compared to what's happened since then, like people are going to have to live 20 more years before they, they reach his numbers. Um, <laughs> so have that. Don, Don Matthews is another guy. Don Matthews and I never got along. Like he, but he was the most interesting CFL person there has ever been to write about. He was just a story all the time, and so you know it's it's awful to say this, but writing his obituary was a bit of a pleasure <laughs> because because there was so much there. Uh, one of my favorite Don Matthews stories is he's just taking over as coach of the Saskatchewan Rough Riders, and they're on the road for their first game, I think, in Winnipeg, and. He gets a call at two in the morning from hotel security. Um, and Don, being Don, answers the phone. Somebody better be dead. Um, <laughs> and, and so he answers the phone and says that. And, uh, and, and they say to him, one of your players is out trying to sneak on the balcony to get into his girlfriend's room. You know, so he was out climbing on you know, right. whatever was going on and hotel security found him and it was like two in the morning they weren't real happy and so he got the guy's name next morning at breakfast he says to his player personnel guy i think i think the name was mcpherson but i'm maybe wrong do we have a mcpherson on this team and the personnel guy says yes he says he looks at him and says not anymore (laughs) that was don matthews Oh, yeah, he was the dictator, right? And he was the head dick. Was that yeah. uh, Don Matthews? Dictatorship. Oh. And funny, Don Matthews 
wanted to coach in the NFL, really badly wanted to coach in the NFL. And Tom Landry, when he was coaching the Dallas Cowboys, phones Matthews. He'd heard all about his pressure defense, and he wanted to have him come to Dallas, show them his pressure defense, and translate the 12-man pressure defense to 11-man football. And so Matthews goes there. He makes a presentation to the Cowboys coaching staff. Um, Tom Landry is so impressed that, uh, that he you know, basically offers him a job on the spur of the moment. You want to come here, you, know, you can come and, and run our defense. And so you know, Matthews leaves, goes to, flies home. I think home was, might have been Toronto at the time. Flies home. By the time he got into his house, Tom Landry had been fired in Dallas. Oh wow! And that, and there went you know his his NFL moment. Um, at that point, he had one other shot, I think, uh, in New Orleans, and it was when the Saints wound up hiring Mike Ditka, which didn't mm-hmm. work out very well for the Saints. I think I think Don Matthews would have been a fine NFL coach. Yeah, and I, just to quickly interject before for Neil for Neil Asset, I think if you ever pick up the book, uh, the Perfect Pass, it mentions. Don Matthews, I think right after that, coached in the, the short-lived uh, World League. Yep. And it was Mike Leach and Hal Mummy studied his two-minute drill to come up with the no-huddle for their air air raid offense, which That's... went on to revolutionize college football. So yeah. the Don actually revolutionized offense, you know, I guess and, uh, and, and in, indirectly. Defense and people. Players love that guy. The media didn't like him. He was a hard guy to deal with. But players adored playing for him. He, he understood things about football that have been come in vogue after he left football. One of the things, uh, the NFL rarely hits anymore at practice. Don didn't believe in hitting in practice at all. Like in those, in those days, everybody hit in practice. The teams Don coached didn't. Hmm. Uh, they would be in helmets, shoulder pads, and, and, and shorts. And that's how he ran things. And now today, you know, because of the, what we know about head injuries and other things, you know, Don was way ahead of his time when it when it came to that. Would you have, you know, we t- we we're just we just finished talking about Pat Quinn and and Don Matthews. Um, we know uh, access has changed tremendously um, over your time, and just you know, in in the last little while for sure. I mean, teams control how how much access you get to the coaches and the players. So how how have you seen that unfold, and how is it cha- how how's it challenged you, and how have you adapted to that? Well, first of all, when I started, the first uh, major beat I had after I covered the Calgary Stampeders for a very short time and then wound up, the Flames had just moved from Atlanta and I wound up on the Flames beat. And we would travel with the team. We would be, they flew commercial in those days. They would book our flights. When we got to the airport, we would take the team bus to your hotel. They would book our hotels. So we knew the players in the airport. We knew them in the lounges. We knew them on planes. We knew, them, like, you saw them everywhere. They were eating in the same restaurants and, and hanging out in the same bars. And so you knew when a kid, when a player's son was sick, you knew when a wife was pregnant, you knew, you knew everything that was going on almost all the time with everybody, just cause you know, you're just around today. It's almost the other extreme, you know, you know, even the team broadcasters aren't allowed to fly on most team planes anymore. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the team's all charter and we fly commercial and you don't get time at the rink to just hang out with players or, or at the, at the ball field or wherever it happens to be, you know, everything is okay. This is, 
we're open. We're open from this time to this time. Uh, you know, one of my favorite things, the Pittsburgh Penguins, when they were the last two times they were in the Stanley Cup finals, mm-hmm. they used to have a, a rule that a player would have to skate on the morning skate on the day of the game to be available to be interviewed. They made up this rule. <laughs> and so Sidney Crosby, Evgeny Malkin, Chris Letang, none of the good players on the Penguins ever skated in the morning skates. So you'd walk in the room and the PR guy would announce proudly that the Penguins are now available and it would be like five guys you've never heard of. Um, and, and and so that's what's really changed. What it's done for, depending on who you are and how you do your job, it's forced people to be more creative. You need more phone numbers than you used to have before. You need more ability to text people. And by that, I'm talking more general managers and coaches. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I, I, you know, I think that's how, you know, the insiders, so to speak, do their job. It's all on phone lines and, and text messages and, and that kind of thing. And so all that's changed as technology has changed. And, uh, but to be honest, the relationship doesn't come to, to be the way it once was. Right. And I'll use the 92, 93 Blue Jays as the best example I can come up with, or even the 93 Leafs. If I walk down the street today and I run into Tom Hankey or Alomar or Doug Gilmore or Dave Andrichuk or whatever, they're going to stop and have a conversation. They're going to say hello. They may not have liked you at the time. They may, you know, Gilmore has written actually the, the forward for the book and him and I did not always get along. So, and he says that in the forward and I thought, I kind of enjoyed the way he approached it, but I could have those conversations. If I'm walking down Young Street today and Vladdy Guerrero and Bo Bichette are walking by, I suspect they don't even, there's not even a nod. Uh, and it's no different with, you know, maybe um, maybe Austin Matthews would say hello for a second because he's kind of a little bit outgoing that way, but a Mitch Marner or, or some other ones might just continue to just walk by. Um, you don't have that built-in relationship that you had years ago. And so what that relationship led to was richer stories. Uh, I'll tell you one that's in the book that probably would surprise people because they wouldn't even know the name. There was a a defenseman in the NHL named Charles Bourgeois. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure either of you would even remember him. When I read the story, I actually didn't remember him, but it was a great story. story. I I am at a swimming pool in St. Louis at a hotel during the playoffs in 1986. And it's about 100 degrees. It's hot, hot, hot in St. Louis. I'm sitting out there, and who comes out to the pool? Charlie Bourgeois, who I knew when he played for the Flames, but didn't know him real, real well, but just knew him because he had been on the team. He got traded to St. Louis, and so he's living in a hotel, same one I'm staying at. So we're talking and talk. He grew up in, in, in Moncton, New Brunswick, and I have family in, in, in the Maritimes, and we talked about different things and where he went and where he grew up and how... And all of a sudden, he starts telling me about his dad. His dad was an RCMP officer, a high-ranking RCMP officer, who was taken hostage. Two policemen were taken hostage, forced to dig their own graves and buried alive and killed in, in, in Moncton many, many years ago. I think Charlie was like 10 or 11 years old when this happened. He opens up, and he starts telling me the whole story. And about a quarter of the way through, I stopped, and I said, can I write this? Because we hadn't said on or off the record or anything. We were just talking. And he said, absolutely. I would be telling you if I didn't want you to write it. And so I wrote the column then. And I'm still touched by it now. 
because can you imagine what that must have been like for a kid? And again, not the most talented hockey player. He wasn't one of these naturals who was going to make it. He's a guy who went and played CIAU hockey at, I think, the University of New Brunswick or one of those schools out there and then wound up in the AHL and then wound up in the NHL and kind of took the slow run to get to the NHL. And then, um, and then you know, this story, you know, all these years later sticks with me because, you know, I'm a dad and, you know, I'm, I'm, we're, we're all sons of somebody. And to have lived through this, uh, I can't even imagine. And, and, to, and then to, to make it big or as big as Charlie Bourgeois was ever going to make it as a hockey player, you know, I'm, I'm proud of him and I'm proud of that story. Yeah. Uh, I mean, sorry, Nate, did you, mm. were you jumping in there? Cause I, um, no, go, go, go on. Neil. Go no, on. I mean, there, yeah. I, I mean, this was something I was going to ask later. I just want to mow your grass there, Nate. Um, but yeah, I mean, these, some of these stories do stay with you, right? I feel like I may have had a conversation with you uh, a number of years ago about when you wrote the, um, you know, the Mike Danton story of the David Frost book uh, and how that stayed with you. Um I mean, some of this, you know, when, when, as a sports writer, we're lucky we don't have to cover hard news. And, and I'm not putting myself in your category, but bottom line is, I mean, some of these stories can stay with you, right? I spent almost two years out of sports mm-hmm. in, in around the 2000 to 2001 time. And uh, I covered a, a story one day where there was a house fire in King City where a woman who was a bartender dash waitress goes home to her house and finds her husband and three kids dead. And we show up, the Sun Reporter and myself, I was the city columnist at the time, I show up the next day and and we go right to the bar figuring they might know where she is. Well, guess who's sitting there at the time? She's got nowhere to go. Her house is gone. The only place she knows to go is, is the place she works. So we walk in there and there she is. And she sits down with us and starts telling us about each of her kids and about her husband and about her life and how it's now all gone. And I'm driving home from there and I'm listening back to my tape and I start crying, listening just in my car, listening to the tape. And I came home and I said to my wife, I can't do this anymore. This is, this is real. This is, this is real. These are real lives I'm writing about. Um, You know, nobody tends to get killed in sports. Or if they do, it's it's a huge accident of some kind. Um, I don't know if I want to do this much longer. And I'm not sure if that was the last column I did a city columnist or how much longer I went. But that was the night I decided I, I, emotionally I didn't have the wherewithal to do the job the way they needed it done. Hmm. Hmm. Um, but but I mean it's it's still I mean there there are some sports stories as you wrote though that that still that still stay with you. And I mean there's another avenue I want to go down with you on this which is also do you think it benefits someone like yourself to have that experience in another part of media in, in another part of journalism uh so that when you go back to sports you have a perhaps a different perspective do you do you oh. feel we, we you know right now you can go to the college of sports media and focus on nothing but sports and get out and work in sports i mean do you think it helps that you had that general, uh, the, you know, you were a general assignment reporter for a little while. Does well, that, you can look that... at it from both sides. You could say, <laughs> as a beat person, you learn how to ask questions. You learn how to follow stories. You learn how, to, sort of the basics of daily journalism. And so mm-hmm. when I went to Newside, I had those basics, and they worked for me as well as they did. 
but I went from a very sourced world where I knew lots of people to a world where I do know anyone. So a lot of days I felt like the dumbest kid in the class. Like I'd go to court and, you know, Christy Blatchford would be there. Or Rosie DeMano would be there. And it's like, I would be looking around saying like, what am I doing with them? Like they're not in, I'm not in their league. And, um, and so but what you realize over time and that, and it happened and it helped when I went back to sports too, is the fundamentals are the fundamentals. If you know how to interview, if you know how to ask questions, if you know how to chase a lead, you know, if you know how to use the phone, there's a lot of basics that are involved in, in daily journalism. And I think if you have the basics, you can cover City Hall and you can cover Queens Park and you can cover a sports team. But what's happened, interesting, more at the Toronto Star, I think, than every, anywhere else, is every couple of years they decide that one of their news writers should be writing sports and they move them into sports. Right. Once in a blue moon, Kevin McGrath may be the exception. Once in a blue moon, it works. But I can give you about 10 examples of it not working. Right. Where they brought in a guy to cover the Jays or they brought in someone to cover the basketball team or whoever it was. Um, it is different. And you have to know how to do it. And you have to know how to chase it. And uh, what I liked about going back to sports, it felt like home for me. I knew, uh, I'll use today as an example, I know two-thirds of the GMs in the NHL um, just because I've been around so long and they've been around so long. Um, I know all the managers or most of the managers in big league baseball. And, you know, you know, a lot of the people around the NBA. So when you go to, I'll, when I go to a Stanley cup playoffs and it's, you know, Tampa against, uh, well, who was it last year they played? Um, <laughs> I've forgotten already. Colorado. You know, yeah. Hall, Colorado. Yeah. You know, and, you know, and John Cooper takes you aside cause he wants to talk to you privately and it's got nothing to do with anything on the record or even about sports. He just, he just wants to have a conversation. Um, and, and so that's really nice. I mean, that's something that I missed when I wasn't in sports was the familiarity of the people around. And what I noticed was that the veterans who had been around, you know, the court reporters and the, and the city columnists and, and the news columnists, you know, they knew the judges and they knew the lawyers and they knew, you know, who was who, the police chief and, and all those people. You know, I basically was introducing myself every day and you always felt like you were two steps behind. <laughs> yeah, the call, calling the police for things is, is not fun. I do that in my current job. Uh, that actually connects some threads for me, Steve, because uh, when you covered the you know David Frost trial in, in 2008, uh, what I, and then re, the book came out, what blew me away was how you were like analyzing. Here's what the Crown didn't ask about. And you often don't see that in court reporting. How, how, how much, how often, if, like, I guess it's been 15 years. How does that, how should people view that whole sorted saga and napanee is actually my hometown how should people look back on that whole sorted saga nowadays <laughs> it was a horrible event that never received the justice it deserved because the justice system is such that a great lawyer will defeat an average to below average lawyer every day of the week and and destroy him in this case it was a her and a him in the process marie hennon in court was beyond brilliant. I always say that if someone brought a meal to your table and it's the best dinner you ever had, within 15 minutes, Marie Hennon could convince you that it wasn't. <laughs> She's that smart. And there was a guy named Sandy C who was working, he's since passed away, was working for you know the province. And he was not a court trained lawyer. He was a paper pusher. 
and he did not know how to conduct himself in court or to even like even the judge kind of said it in, in his summation you know this it was a mismatch and so dave frost had a you know the brilliant attorney and the poor jefferson family that were looking for justice for what had happened to one or two of their kids depending on how you view this um got none and dave frost as i i think i've written and maybe in the piece in the book i don't remember if it's in that piece or not it you know he was found not guilty but he was not found innocent mm-hmm. yeah yeah <laughs> it is yeah it, and how maybe looking back i mean that was 2008 you know you know, a lot of changes in the culture since then, but I think the principles of what happens in a courtroom haven't changed. And well, what's what kind of remarkable big picture is all this Hockey Canada stuff has come out, all the scandal involved and, and other scandals that we're now finding out about. And Sheldon Keefe coaches the Leafs, mm-hmm. and it's like this bad portion of his life has just been the script has been written in another direction. I, I've written the piece, and it's in right. the book yes. about my interview with him. But it's barely gotten a mention. And I thought in, in recent times with the, the Mitchell Miller story out of Boston, you know, right. Sheldon Keefe did some dreadful things to young ladies, as did Mike Denton, as did David Frost, you know, to people who to this day are still fighting these demons. But, you know, he's Sheldon Keefe and he coaches the Leafs and, and we are not supposed to mention this. But is that, I mean, is that what you, you pride yourself on as being that journalist in that scrum or, 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 you know, wherever at the press conference that will ask that question? Is that, do you, is that what you, it's not so much asking the question in the scrum. It's seeing, and I'll, I'll give you an example of what happened here. I wrote a column on the day the St. Mike's majors traded Sheldon Keefe, Mike Danton, or Mike Jefferson at the time, and the other two guys whose names now escape me, to the Barry Colts in exchange for almost nothing. And the Barry Colts were a very good team, and St. Mike's was a very bad team. And I thought, why is St. Mike's trading their best players away and getting almost nothing in return? So Terry Koshin was, was our junior hockey writer at the time. And Terry said to me, um, they're, do- they're doing it to get away from Frost. And I said, what do you mean, get away? Who's Frost? He said, and his line to me was, you don't want to know. And that's where we ended the conversation. And the worst thing I think you can say sometimes to a journalist is you don't want to know. Uh, and so what happened uh, was that I, I started making phone calls. Oh, sorry, let me, one more thing. I wrote a call, a column that day. Like, why has this happened? And John Crick, who's now our, our football writer at Sun Media, um, he, was a, he was one of our senior editors at the time. And he he read the column and he said, I've never done this before, but I don't think we should run it. And I said, why? He says, because you don't have the story. You have part of the story. Why don't you go out and get the story? I'll hold the column. You know, you know, you've done good work here, but I don't think you have the story. And I spent the next two months working on a story about Dave Frost. And when he, you know, when Mike Denton was arrested at San Jose Airport all those years later, nobody knew who Dave Frost, for trying to kill Dave Frost, and nobody knew who Dave Frost was. The New York Times and the Washington Post, and I can't tell you how many, USA Today and so a whole bunch of other newspapers basically rewrote my David Frost feature from 1999. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's, I mean, do you think you would revisit that now? Like, I mean, you have the story in the book about Sheldon Keefe, but I mean, you, you mentioned, you know, it's not 
being talked about now. Is that something you would revisit now, or is that been oh, put oh, to bed oh, for you? The only way you revisit it is you ask him, what do you think about this situation? What do you think about that 2018, you know, what happened in London? You know, I think that's where you revisit it. I don't think revisiting, like, his story's been covered. Mm. I covered it as best as I could, as best I could, and I, you know, I wrote the book as honestly, and and I'm really proud of the book as well as I could, and and so I, I don't have any more to say about what went on there, mm-hmm. um, and so that's not new. But I think having a viewpoint of what does this man think at age forty of things he did when he was sixteen, mm-hmm. uh, when you see a kid, uh, Miller for example, who's mm-hmm. not getting signed because of things he did, you know, at a, at a certain age. And I, and I had a, a mention in a column recently. Um, I'm sure you're familiar with Craig McTavish. Yes. Craig McTavish, you know, went to prison for vehicular homicide. Mm-hmm. So he killed right. him, came out of prison, went right back into the NHL, spent almost the next 20 years playing, and then now coaching and GMing ever since, and he's still coaching in St. Louis until that staff gets fired. Um Sometimes getting a second chance is a pretty good thing. You know, right. it's been a pretty good thing for Sheldon Keith. It's been a pretty good thing for McTavish. You mm-hmm. know, in today's world, knowing what we now know of of the way, you know, we're so fast to judge things. And um would would Craig McTavish have gotten a second chance? Would um you know, would Sheldon Keith have gotten a second chance? Or even a first chance, because in his case, the stuff that he did was in junior hockey. And at that right. time, you know, Tampa. Tampa, you know, drafted him in the second round when everybody had him listed as a first round pick and no one wanted to touch him because they didn't want any part of Frost. Hmm. Yeah, um, interesting points. Nate, where should we go here? Should I go go into my uh, controversy part or should yeah, I? Yeah, uh... you should, you should. Okay. Yeah. We got, right. we got to get to the fun uh, stuff, right? Yeah, well, we got to get to the fun stuff eventually. Yeah. Um, um, uh, so, yeah, let, let's talk about some of the uh, some of the more provocative or or controversial stuff you have written. Um, and uh, there's a story that everybody knows in Toronto and probably throughout hockey called sickness cured Kessel gone, right? When I tell you, when I say those words, sickness cured Kessel gone, what comes to your mind? Are you like, oh no, not, not this again? No, because I'm kind of astounded by the life that two sentences has had. Um, I, I think that piece is about 950 words. And I think if you actually go back and read it, or read it now, or even read it then, um, I think it's the most accurately uh, explained piece of why the Leafs did not want Phil Kessel as part of their rebuild. And mm-hmm. um, and, and so what happened was the hot dog stand reference, which unfortunately, and it's my error via other people's errors, uh, had the wrong address. Um on it and so you know the story comes out of phil kessel buying hot dogs outside his condo which was true i just happened to have the wrong address and um and so what became big news at the time was you know this is not true and this never happened and mm-hmm. uh, and i've been hearing that forever and ever from you know there's a lot of people out there that don't like me and don't like my work and, and here we are seven years or eight seasons later, <laughs> seven years or eight seasons later. And, you know, 
Phil Kessel's birthday comes, what happens? He's got hot dogs on the cake. Phil Kessel has a Stanley Cup party after Peglin. <laughs> what does he bring? He brings hot dogs out. It's become right. for him. He, and he's never, by the way, he's never once said that the story wasn't true. This is one of the interesting things to me. Um, lots of other people have said that, but he hasn't. Um, and and the story has nothing really to do with hot dogs. The story is right. why did the Leafs not want him? And in the right. piece, it's very clearly um, to the point of when, when Brendan Shanahan went to work the next day after making the trade, um, uh, one of the guys in the Leafs front office is laughing. And Shanahan says, well, what are you laughing about? He said, well, did you read Simmons's column today? And he says, no, I haven't seen the papers yet. Why? He says, because it looks like you wrote it. <laughs> uh, it sounded like you wrote it. And, 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 and to me, that was, if, if anything told me that I nailed the thing, that story did. Because I, be, I believe other than screwing up, and on, 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 there's a stupid series of things that led to me getting the wrong address. It's so boring that I'm not, I'm not going to continue to tell the story. But that said, Go back. I, I honestly wish every person who reps me to this day goes back and reads the darn thing. Because it, it will tell you more than anything that's been written anywhere else. It will tell you why the Leafs didn't want them. Hmm. Yeah, and it kind of makes sense now. I mean, they were rebuilding, and usually when you do that, you move, you move, move a player. But I just, but I guess me, just, just to get it one, the one two. Mike the Babcock two. was hired just before Kessel was traded. And uh, Mike Babcock um, and I had a conversation, as I do with every time a new coach, new GM, whatever, you tend to, you know, try and arrange for a lunch or, or a meeting or how are you going to have your relationship? Are we going to text messages? Are we going to send emails? Are we going to phone each other? Like, what are we going to do? And you always have that conversation. At least I always have had that conversation. And so I'm talking to Babcock and Babcock says, well, I don't go off the record. I want to tell you that right now. I don't go off the record. So then we start talking. I said, well, do you want Phil Kessel on your team? The first thing's out of his mouth. Let's go off the record. <laughs> you know, to me, that says something about Babcock, and it says something about what they cared about or didn't care about the Phil. Okay, so how should how should one sort these, like, two, I guess, parallel things that, one, if they, it, you, the, the columns in your mind stands as accurate, and but also Phil Kessel's gone on to be the NHL's Iron Man. How, how did that work out? Well, if you never go into a corner and you never come back into your own zone and you're on the ice, by, by the way, on the ice for the most goals against as a forward in his, uh, from the day he entered the NHL to today, he has been on for more goals against than any other player in hockey. Uh, if you play only portions of the rink, then you're not going to put yourself. I mean, it's amazing that he's done what he's done. Let's let's be honest. Anyone, I don't care who you are. It's amazing that a puck hasn't hit him or something hasn't happened that way, or even in practice get hurt. But Phil only plays like I mean, what do they talk three zones? I think he plays like one and a half zones. So if you only play one and a half zones and you never put yourself in positions to get hit, then you're going to do what he does. That said, Phil Castle's extraordinarily skilled. I mean, look what he did on the two years Pittsburgh won those cups. He wasn't the best forward on a team with Crosby and Malkin. He was the second best forward. And I'll, over two years, you know, I think it was Crosby one, Kessel two, Malkin three. Um, he was that good. Now, in between, you know, you get him in Arizona where he's going through the motions and, and that's Phil. And what happened here, and, the, and one of the reasons that they got really sick of him here, 
Um, Brendan Shanahan fired Randy Carlisle, who was the coach, and brought in Peter Horacek, who never should have been brought in, but that's a whole other story. Um, and basically, he's, he brought the players together in a meeting. And I think it was January something when this happened. He said, listen, season starts now. I want to see between now and the end of the season how much you want to be a Maple Leaf. You got you to gotta prove to me that you still want to play here because some of you aren't showing it to me. And over the final, whatever games it was, 40-some games, I think Kessel had four goals. And he was a non-participant most of the time. And that convinced Shanahan that, that he can't have him as part of a rebuild because he, he's just not serious enough for what they were looking to do. It, it's interesting when you mentioned, uh, you know, just right off the top when you answered that question to Nate, I, I thought I, out of nowhere, I just started drawing parallels to Vince Carter in a way. Now, I know mm-hmm. Phil Kessel's got championships. Vince has none. But, you know, when people defend Vince Carter, they always talk about oh, how talented he is. And I'm not saying he eats hot dogs or he doesn't try, but you can play a long time if, you know, you probably haven't gone through that grind of the playoffs or whatever. So a loose comparison, I guess, just oh, kind of entered my mind. What's what's interesting thing with Vince Carter is – Vince Carter got more and more loved as his career got older and older, which kind of has happened, I think, to Phil as well. Mm-hmm. You know, I think you, you hang around long enough, and, and Patrick Marlowe, I think the same thing kind of happened in, in his final years. Right. Um, in Vince's case, he, in Toronto, should have been NBA All-Star, like one of the best players in the NBA. That's what he should have been. His talent said that. And, and there came a point where either his mom or himself or his agents or whomever just decided they can't be here anymore and, and this doesn't work. So rather than, you know, you know, orchestrating a trade by asking to be traded, he orchestrated a trade by basically stopping to play and he quit on the team mm-hmm. and he quit on the Raptors. I mean, there's no, there's no, for all the guys who want to build statues for, for Vince, mm-hmm. go right ahead, build a statue for Vince saying, thank you for what's become of Canadian basketball. Because mm. boys, Canadian basketball becomes something great. Um, but what did the Raptors become under with Vince? They played in, I think they won one playoff series. Mm-hmm. That's um, right. Yeah. And, that was, and that was with Tracy McGrady, was still here. Right. So, you know, there were some nice moments. And yeah, he won the sl- uh, People talk about the slam dunk competition like it's something real. <laughs> you know, you know no, nobody says, oh, you know, great, great hockey player. He won the, he hit the shooting pylons at the All Star game. No Granted, the, the the NBA dunk competition is a cultural event, and and it was you know finally someone could hang their hat hat on something in the city. Oh, but I'm I'm with you it on was that a fabulous the, moment, but it meant zero to true. helping the Raptors win. And, and I'm with you. I think that the um, I mean I'm you know I, we have a, I, we talked a little bit about this with Doug Smith, and, but I, I I I'm with you. I think that there there was a there's a pendulum swing that's gone way too far one way, and maybe it was too far the other way to begin with with the hate. But I absolutely agree that the, when you talk to people, it's like they're blinded. They, it's like you, did you forget about some of this stuff that happened, and then, oh, then that then it goes into the jersey retirement. This and, is what happens with with so many athletes that people love. Hmm. You you take a position and you never come off of it. And if a columnist does that, by the way, we're we're idiots if we do that. We're we're controversial. We're morons. We're, you can use any word you want. I've been called all of them. Um, um, but when the public does it and they take their position and don't come off of it, 
that's okay. And you know what? If you have a position on, there's no wrong position on Vince. You know, it, my position is my opinion and what I thought. And I was around. And, and it's funny, I couldn't find a really good Vince piece for the book. I really mm. wanted to find one. The best one I found, and, and I, it's in the book, is about, you know, never mind trading Vince. Can we trade his mom? <laughs> and, and it was all about the power that she had been granted from GMs and ownership and players and everybody else to do with the Raptors. And the NBA has always been a player's league, obviously, and uh, more than it, more than the right. other leagues, I think. Well, moving on to the guy that did get it done, uh, and you write about the uh, you, you've said it already about the, about the bye bye Kawhi. That was one of the articles in the uh, in 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 your book, A Lucky Life. Um, how did his unavailability foster the concept of? a myth now you know we can look back at like ted williams and babe ruth and there's the myth in sports but really since the hyper coverage of sports started there's no myths anymore but Kawhi, somehow in addition to being a man and a legend became a myth so how did that happen did that happen because he wasn't available and he didn't talk i think it was Kawhi being Kawhi. Mm-hmm. um he he got traded to the raptors and the first thing he said to masai ujiri is why did you make this trade and, and, and Masai said to him, you're the best player in the NBA and you were available. And if the best player in the NBA is available, I'm going to try and trade for it. And, and, and Masai kind of, he looked at Masai kind of funny, but he understood Kawhi was a pragmatist. Uh, and he understood that he had to be a certain way. And he was okay being that way as long as they gave him, you know, the rope or whatever. And, the, and the, the combination of the Raptors and Kawhi and load management and the people that came up with the concept and, and orchestrated it, uh, it's, you know, they really, you know, Kawhi came here. He didn't change. He never stopped being who he was. He played basketball at a higher level than we'd ever seen before. He played defense at a higher level that we'd ever seen before, especially the bigger the game, uh, mm-hmm. often the better he played. And, um, and he, you know, basically led the way, you know, with some Golden State injuries to the Raptors winning a championship, which was nobody saw coming. And, and he never stopped being the guy who didn't care about press, the guy who didn't care about the public, the guy who wanted to play basketball, live his life, win games, and live in California. And so in the end of the day, you know, there he is now in California. Unfortunately, he's not been healthy enough. He didn't play all last season. I think he's only played two games or so this year. Um, but I don't think Kawhi ever stops being Kawhi. Often with athletes, they, they mold in over the years to what you want them to be. They just become that. Uh, in, in Kawhi's case, I've never seen him not being Kawhi. And, you know, I think I'm every day they used to, the, the press used to ask him whenever he was available, you know, we talked about next year, we talking about signing a contract. What are you thinking about? You know, are you thinking about leaving? And of course he never answered any of the questions. He just kind of, you know, did his thing and did his one right. availability and moved on. So one day I, you know, they're in, they're in the scrum. And I said, do you think Danny Green's coming back next year? And it was the first time, I think that whole year in one of these things, he just stopped and laughed like, Thank you for asking something that, you know, is light or whatever in, on, on the circumstances. And uh, and I kind of enjoyed the moment because because he kind of enjoyed the moment. 
Well, I'm going to ask you one of the harder questions we had today, and I, I'm thankfully you're not shying away from it. So thank you. Uh, we've talked about um, uh, sickness cured Kessel gone. Um, and we're going to get to the lightning round shortly because I know we're way over time probably. Um, but um, you're not on trial here. We don't, We you know, but I'd be wrong if I didn't ask you about the most recent controversy. And it, it comes in the form of the Sunday notes um, where basically you'd written about Akeem Aliu and how, you know, he hadn't lasted on a bunch of teams. And so, you know, putting that note in and then basically comparing him to Wayne Simmons. And where do you stand like on the reaction to that? Because it was, you know, it was, it was all over the internet and Twitter. So well, yeah, I'd like your take on it. Start, start with the fact that the reaction was all over Twitter and the internet, but where it wasn't, the newspaper editors of the sun didn't hear much of anything from anyone. The email of the sports editor didn't hear much of anything from anyone. My personal, the email that they post in the paper uh, had a few responses, but not many. And um, uh, one of the things that's interesting, what you realize is what happens on social media and what happens in the real world aren't always the same thing. And so sometimes a, a response, and this was a strong one. I mean, I, I trended, I think, for four days <laughs> on Twitter, and the hatred was to a point where Frankly, I was getting physically sick over what was going on, and um, and uh, but what you realize is that so much of the hate that you see now on Twitter, or whether it's you know stuff from U.S. politics or, or whatever it happens to be, it's angry mob mentality, so often um, orchestrated by people behind the scenes that want to make a point and. And I'll use I'll use this as an example because um, I, I made I made a couple of mistakes here, and, I, and I'm quick okay. to admit that um, I never ever should have in, involved Wayne Simmons in any way. He had nothing to do with what I was saying or wanting to say, and that's just and I, and, and I told him that, um, which he wasn't very accepting of. But that's a whole other story. Um, uh, I just. Uh, I, that was a that was an error on my part, and when you write, you know, eight million words over time, you don't always say things exactly as you want to say them. Um, in terms of Akeem, I have no regard for him. I know too many things. I've heard too many stories, and so the fact that I don't care for him has nothing to do with race or anything else. It's I don't care for him. And I should have said it in a in a way that wouldn't have pointed to me in that direction. And I made the error and I've paid dearly for it. And and uh, and I wish that I hadn't used the wording that I used. Um, but I don't. What's the word? I don't back away from the point that I was trying to make. Hmm. Right. And yeah. uh, and nor can I because I. Frankly, and I think if I laid out some of the things for you or anyone listening at home, it would be hard for them to disagree too. But I'm not going to do that. Yeah, so, something something I heard like the other day when something I was covering was intent versus effect. I guess is is that fair to say that's something you sort of have worked through with that? Well, you know what? To be perfectly honest, in today's world, you have to be so careful about everything you say that I probably should not have 
use the note at all. It didn't enhance the column in any way and got me in way, way too much trouble than it, I needed to be. Uh, that said, um, every time I saw that Scotiabank commercial with him in it, um, I was terribly bothered. Again, sometimes knowledge is a bad thing. Hmm. Yeah, well, we're going to get to the do, fun do, stuff now. Well, well <laughs> we are, but I want to ask. No, I want to ask one thing though, because you, you, it, it ties into what you're saying. Is, is it at a point? Now, listen, the press conferences are covered in, in its entirety, so the journalist has now become part of the story per se. Your question is: It do you find it's harder for you to ask a question that you think is? And I know that's not what this is about. I think the real controversy here is is what you just basically said sorry for which is apologizing to wayne for kind of holding him up uh, as an example but i want to just switch it a little bit and say do you find that you can't even ask a question now well i'll give you an example i have asked a question and before the answer had come out of a coach's mouth i've already been emailed what a stupid question or boy are you an idiot or what, however and so we lived a long time where press conferences and interviews were not public and now so much of the daily give and take, it's all public. And so people are responding instantly to anything. There was something last year in Edmonton that involved my friend Jim Matheson. And I forget who the player was. It Patrick, was it uh, Leon Dreisaitl he got into a thing with? And he asked, him why, he so, asked him why he was so pissy. And it, yes, oh, yes, that was Leon. Yeah, it was. I've known Jim Matheson since, since 1980. He is the least controversial person I've probably ever come across. Aside from being a pretty good, he's in the Hockey Hall of Fame and he's done a nice job for all those years working for the Edmonton Journal and lately for the Edmonton Sun. And um, and so he became, on Twitter, you would have thought that he had, like, you know, taken a gun and shot somebody. Um, mm. You know, pe people overreact to things now on, on such, on a, they're looking for reasons to overreact. They're looking for reasons to scream and yell. And more often than not, the guys who are the loudest are the ones who don't have names, who don't put a name to something. And mm. just to give you an example, I've been in bars where some guy comes up and just tells me what an a-hole I am. <laughs> and then we start talking. And within five or ten minutes, he wants to take a selfie. He wants to take a picture with me. And, <laughs> and then he, want, you know, then he th wants to know where he can buy the book. Like, I find whenever you have conversations with people, you can usually fix almost any problem they may have had with you with just, you know, understanding or explanation or, or any of that. And so I, you know, go ahead. there's go ahead. a there's a Jose Batista story which okay. you probably are familiar with. Where, uh, was it his had, reaction? I, yes. Go ahead. I had said something online about him regarding he, he wanted the Jays to make trades and they didn't make trades. I can't remember the exact context. Um, and his, he came back with a snappy response that the Twitter <laughs> world just ate up and loved. Right. We, he put you in your place. Well, the next morning my phone rings and it's Alex Anthopoulos and Paul Beeston together on speakerphone laughing their asses off. They think this Twitter thing is the funniest thing they've ever seen because they know that Jose doesn't do his own Twitter. Mm. Uh, he had some company in New York handling his online thing. So stupid me then put on Twitter, you know, you know, take this seriously. Jose doesn't even do his own Twitter. 
And of course, the Jose people then responded saying, yes, we do. You know, <laughs> you know. Well, it, it, and, so that, and then I became even more of an idiot. And I saw Jose on the first day of spring training. I was in Dunedin for spring training. And I went up and, and basically said, like, are we OK? And he said, absolutely. Like, he didn't even know much about what this whole thing had happened. Like, mm. so what 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 the public believes is a controversy or what the public believes is a huge thing isn't always so huge or, you know, uh, you know, unsolvable is a better way of putting it. And when you write eight, 8,000 columns and you write Sunday notes with 30 opinions in every column and you start multiplying it by 30 years, well, guess what? Nobody's going to agree with all of them. And if they do agree with all of them, they're an effing idiot. <laughs> this, uh, this, all, ahead, this all sounds very much like another uh you know re realm of uh sports entertainment where where you've spent some time uh as a fan what what did watching wrestling you know do to help you understand how fandom works and i guess how how good storylines are made um i don't know if it did anything other than you know sort of pique my interest Okay. Uh, and I've always been interested. I was interested when I was a kid and used to go watch The Sheik at Maple Leaf Gardens. And I and I love that. And then I moved to Calgary and they had Stampede Wrestling. And it was a big part of, of the community. And it's funny. On Friday afternoons at the Calgary Herald, Stu Hart would drop off a typed sheet of paper with that night's wrestling results. So we could get it in the paper the next day without having to worry about deadlines. That's and smart so, man. You know, the card would go on Friday night. And Friday afternoon, Stu would drop off the results. Um, <laughs> And, and so I got to know him and I got to know, you know, not Jim Neidhart had tried out for this Calgary Stampeders and uh, then became a wrestler. And, and Brian Pillman had played for the Stampeders and became a wrestler. And so there was always this back and forth with football and the Hart family and wrestling. And, and I just got into it. And I don't know if it, it brought me to any point of, you know, good guy, bad guy or anything else, because, boy, you know what? Michael Farber's a good friend of mine, and he might be the best sports columnist Canada's ever had. And he's one of these guys that's beloved by everyone. <laughs> yeah. And when you're not a guy who's beloved by everyone, there's a party that says, boy, I'd really like to be Michael Farber. <laughs> and you can only be who you are. And so the best that I could be is who I've been for the last 40 years. And if, you know, and if, and that upsets you, I'm sorry, but I think I've, you know, done the job as well as I could do, given my talents and abilities and, and, you know, what I've gotten to cover over the years. And, you know, but I'm not sure wrestling played a shape <laughs> in, in, you know, in me being a bad guy. i tell you a quick story. I'm covering the Calgary Flames. It's my second year, and the team's just had moved from Atlanta. And Al McNeil is the coach, and he's, frankly, lost the team. Like, the team is a disaster, and it's not going well. And the players just make fun of him all the time. And like, and as you are on the planes and the buses and all these things with the guys, all you're hearing is bad Al McNeil stuff. So about 40 or 50 games into the season, I write a story about, you know, they're going to have to fire Al McNeil. And the Calgary Sun being as they were in those days and probably are today, you know, does the runs the tasteful front page in huge, bold World War II starting kind of letters, fire the coach. Well, City of Calgary was not used to that kind of journalism, and they weren't used to that the sun being there. And, and this was all this was like enormous that some snot nosed kid was going to tell them who's going to coach the Flames. 
And so I'm awfully nervous. I'm 23 or four years old and I'm going to dinner in the, in the, the rink that night. Flames are playing and they're playing the Maple Leafs. And I'm sitting at the, in the dining room and a hand goes on my shoulder. It's Frank Orr, who was the veteran hockey writer at the Toronto Star and one of the most respected people in the industry. And all I hear is, hell of a story, kid. And, <laughs> and, and you know, what? when Frank Orr says that, it's like, you've now told me that I can write anything as long as, you know, I believe it or believe in it or whatever. And, and uh, as, as Mike Zeisberger, who used to work for the Toronto Sun and now works for NHL.com once said, he said, you can win all the awards you want, but a compliment for, from Frank Orr was worth more than any of them. And, and just, and just ahead, quickly, uh, the, of course, the Sun papers are known for the traditional A1 line story. I you know, worked on the desk for a few years. How much, maybe it's changed over the years, how much what input do writers have into how that's you know, played up? Or is it just kind of like you wrote it and it's out of your hands? Like, if, it's, if, if we start at 100%, I would say my, my influence for what they're going to do with the story is about 5%. Okay. Um, the only time I've ever really gotten into fights is when I've written something that I think is really important and they don't think it's important. And then I have to kind of sort of fight with them or what are you going to put on front page tomorrow? What have you got that's better than this? But, right. but most of the time when they, they take things that I don't even think are, are any good some days. And, you know, we have a thing where I think the Leafs trump everybody else when it comes to to, to newspaper sales. Right. So, you know, if we can get the Leafs on front, it doesn't matter you know, what the story is, as long as it's the Leafs. Um, you know, that's just the way the world works. But no, I, 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 we don't have much influence. And often when you do try and have some, you know, sorry, we'll make the call. Thank you. You, you mentioned the, the, I'm getting to the lightning round. Don't worry. But um, you, <laughs> you hungry, that's why. I, no, I just don't want to keep you for too long. But I, I will say this. Um, um, uh, you mentioned Frank Orr, and there was a question I put to one side that I will ask now. Um, you know, in terms of generations, you know, getting that compliment from Frank Orr, I mean, is there a schism now? Is there someone you could even do that to in the younger generation? I know you have a son working in the media, or at least was working in the media. Um, you can cor- clarify that for me. But, yeah, I mean, is that something you want to do and pay forward? And is there someone out there that you have done that with? Well, I've always tried because I was really lucky of when I got in the business. I got into the business when Milt Dunnell and Jim Proudfoot were the columnists at the Star, and Dick Beddoes was at the Globe, and and Scott Young had just left the Globe, and, and Trent Frayne was was at the Sun, and and Jim Hunt, and these people treated me like gold, like I couldn't believe how I got treated by these legends of the industry, and I always said when I get to the point of being a veteran guy who thought that you know I'd be doing this for forty some years. Um, that I would be that kind of guy to the next generation. The Toronto Sun, I don't believe we've hired a sports writer in almost 20 years. Yeah, like, you can certainly tell. Are yeah. there 20 some years? Like when I covered the Flames, Eric Dehachik, who I don't know if you know that name, mm-hmm. oh, he yeah. covered the Flames for the other paper. David <laughs> Schultz, who since retired, was my backup. We were all 24 or under covering a major beat at the time. In Edmonton at the time, Cam Cole and Jim Matheson and all of these guys were just starting out. Um, 
where are the 20 some year olds now? Like who's hiring them? The globe has a sports department. That's about, you know, the size of my pocket. Um, mm. You know, the national post doesn't really have one anymore because they're us. And, and so right. the, the industry has just shrunk and the jobs available has just shrunk and the opportunities have just shrunk. And mm. I, I feel bad for the young person who wants to do what we did because, mm. you know, until, well, we're lucky that we have a pile of guys who are turning 60 and I'm 65 and, you know, how much longer are all we, we all going to work? But, but in the world we now live in, is anybody going to be hired to replace us? And you yeah. just don't know because um, that's the way that the business has gone. But when I was at the, Cal I started the Calgary Herald in 1979, right out of Western. Mm -hmm. And, we had, I think, six or seven guys, 27 or under. Like, yeah, that's just yeah. not possible in today's world. Yeah, I mean, it's, do you even have, um, like, a, a, a back desk to copy edit anymore? I mean, that's, that's no, another thing, right? The thing. We used to have about 10 people who put out the Sun Sports Department on a nightly basis. Now I think it's four or five people who put out the Toronto Sun, the Ottawa Sun, the Winnipeg Sun, all on the same night. Mm. So they're doing about five times the amount of work per person and and no time. So there, there's no editing that can go on the way we used to have copy editors who just right. copy. That doesn't exist anymore. And so it's, you know, a quick spell check and bang on. And that and, yeah. and so the day I'll, I'll use the thing we just talked about with Akeem, mm. you know, in the days of a copy editor, a copy editor might have read that thing and said, you know what, Steve, maybe you want to say this differently. But yeah. in today's world, we don't get that benefit of the doubt anymore because they don't have the time. They're too busy with, I got to get my next page out. And that comes down to cuts, right? Which is the, oh. like, it's, and it's, it's well, sad because that's a business decision, but it really affects like what perception is in the world. Well, we also have uh, for the for the broadsheets across the country, and by the broadsheets, that's the two papers in Vancouver, and, and you know, one in Calgary, and one in Edmonton, and one, one in Ottawa, and one in Montreal. A lot of their pages are being done in Hamilton mm. by one desk that's in Hamilton, and 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 that's that's what's happened in the in the world of journalism for the most part, and it's cuts, and it's you know, unfortunately. They wouldn't be cutting if they were making the kind of money they used right. to, which they're right. not making anymore. And the, the business is in trouble, frankly. And I don't know what the future is. Uh, I think the newspaper business is in big trouble. Well, wow. The lightning round, really, we're entering that on a downer. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, but you know what? It, 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 it's interesting to hear it from you. You've seen it. You're, you're there. You've seen the whole thing. And yeah, I mean, I, I really think the industry now exists in there's a mainstream world that's in trouble and then a, uh, non-mainstream world that seems to be carrying the load, but that is not necessarily rooted in journalism, right? Like spit and chiclets is fun and exciting and cool, but it's not necessarily journalistically based. So you're going to miss out on some things, right? That a traditional journalist could provide. Yeah, but I think the athletic in sports has really done a nice job of of becoming something significant and right. hiring some significant people and paying some significant dollars to hire significant people. Mm -hmm. And it got sold for what five hundred million dollars. So there, there's there's yeah. some value to an online True. sports publication of some kind of some quality, and yeah. you know, and good for them for for doing. I never would have believed it would have got as big as it's gotten, but you know, 
it's about the thousandth time I've been wrong about what's coming next <laughs> in the business. And it, it, it's true in that, like, you know, if, if you've been around long enough, I think me and Nate as well have been around a little bit, of, like not as long as you, but you, that it was a breath of, you, there was a time when you were just like, okay, it's clickbait. Where's it going? And then the athletic came in and you kind of see a, 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 an opening now, maybe there will be a new life online or with a tech based company that knows how to do this right. But I think the key is letting a journalist be objective and ask the questions uh, I've always, I don't know, hopefully we'll see, we'll see that live. The one, um, the one thing that doesn't exist as much as it did or, and, and it's really, I think I'm a, I'm a dinosaur in the world now because the day of the general sports columnist, that's the guy who doesn't have an area of expertise. Mm. You know, I'll write hockey and hockey season, a baseball, baseball season, a basketball and football and whatever. Uh, and do, you know, I did 17 Olympic games. Um, the day of the generalist, and we all grew up on them. You know, we grew up on the Milt Donalds and the Jim Proudfoots and all those, and the Stephen Brunts, who, who was brilliant at it, and Michael Farber in Montreal. Um, that guy's kind of disappearing. And, you right. know, papers like the two Vancouver papers and the two Calgary papers, and they don't even have columnists. And so, to me, the first thing, I maybe, maybe this is why I became a columnist, but the first thing I read, even as a kid, is I went straight to the column. You know, I could always read the game story later, but I went straight to the column every day in whatever paper, whether right. it was the Telegram or the Star or whatever it was we got at home. You know, I remember Jim Proudfoot used to have those notes at the bottom of his column. That was the first thing I read every day were the notes at the bottom of his column. Then I went to the top. And and so I guess deep down, not knowing it, I knew what I wanted to be. But I, you know, I just wasn't aware enough at the time to realize it. Was Milt Donald's notes the inspiration for your Sunday notes? Um, actually, no. Frank okay. Orr used to write a column for the star called Either Or. It was mm. a Sunday column, and it was mostly hockey and, and, and in Frank's case, mostly funny, because Frank was a really funny man. Mm. And I got called into Wayne Parrish was the sports editor at the start of the time. I got called in to his office one day, and he said, I want you to come up with something for Sunday that is a compliment to sort of what Frank's doing. And that's when I started with the Sunday notes. At that time, it was only um, about 700 words. It's 2,400 now. You just go down the page, and, and, and that was the, where it began. And so within two years, I think, um, that column moved from down the side of the page to a full page, mm. and either or disappeared. Either or was dumped by the start. And so we had a sort of we had won the notes column fight, if you want to call it. If it even if it was a fight, it probably wasn't. They probably didn't even notice the way that the star looked at the sun in those days. Right. Uh, so and now probably as well. But, <laughs> but they uh, it started. And I remember Frank saying to me, you know, because he knew the story. You know, he was kind of chuckling about the fact that these people are so stupid. They, you know, your column's still around and mine's gone. You know, that kind of thing. And here we are 30 years later, and that column that's now a page is now two pages, and it's the size of three columns, you know, on a, on a daily basis. Well, there you have it. I, I'm going to start the uh, the Sunday, or not the Sunday, it's the lightning round with uh, our first remote question, uh, Nate. I had uh, two friends on a chat group in Kingston that are very excited that Steve was on the show. And Paul and Ben, I'll, I'll withhold their last names because the first thing says, ask him a serious question. 
Why is it that I can't stand reading any Steve Simmons articles, yet when he's on the radio, I like him? Mm, okay. Well, we'll start with, and then he asks, who is your favorite radio host to, to work with? To work with? Yeah. I would say Bob McCowan. Right. Um, he was, honestly, he was at a level beyond anyone else I've ever worked with on radio. It was absolute pleasure. And, and let's be honest, Bob's not the world's nicest man. Um, <laughs> but boy, is he good at what he does. And boy, was he good at what he does when he was on radio and now doing it on the podcast. You know. Are you going to join him? Uh, you, is that a, even an option for you to join <laughs> Shannon and him? Would you like to? Um, I would love to. They're doing fantastic, by the way. Yeah, and, I heard. And good for them. And, you know, again, Bob is, Bob had a talent. Be, I, I was really lucky, timing-wise, sometimes. We're sitting there. At, I think it's around 6 o'clock. And I'm, I used to fill in for Jim Hunt or fill in for whoever the co-host was once in a while. And it was really a pleasure to go in and do it. And, and so, <clears throat> excuse me. So, um, so I'm in there and it's just about six o'clock and the news breaks that Magic Johnson has contacted HIV. And this was a stunning, stunning story. And, and we have to now change our entire show around on the fly to do the next hour completely on AIDS and HIV. And Bob knew absolutely nothing about either topic. And I was, well, fortunately, may not be the right word. My brother at the time was HIV positive and was, in fact, sort of in the beginnings of his stages of dying. Um, and so at commercials, I would fill Bob in with information. And he didn't want me talking much when the show was on because he was interviewing doctors and and scientists and lab people and all these things, um, and so he, he would he would do the interviews with such finesse that you would sit back in the other chair and just be amazed at how good this man was or how good he could conduct himself. That was one time I was just blown away by his ability. And the other time was it was an election, Canadian election. And Jean Chrétien was running for office. I believe he was prime minister at the time, and he was running for re-election. And in those days, the, the guys running for, for office would always come on every radio show. And often with a sports radio show, they wouldn't tell you when they're coming on. They would, like, phone the producer. We've got John Chrétien. He'll be on in five. <laughs> and, you know, mm. and, and here's Bob, who's you know, born in Ohio, and I don't know how much he's paid attention to Canadian politics over the years, but, you know, he's getting John Chrétien in five. And again, it's time for me to be quiet. And he conducted the entire interview himself. And honestly, it was, you know, it was like he was Peter Mansbridge. Like, <laughs> you know, he, he was that good. And, and he remains that good. And, you know, it's still, he's, you know, here we are. What, what, what are we in now? Um, second hour? Of, of the <laughs> yeah, we can go 90 <laughs> minutes here. Up the 45 minutes and he's out. Like, right. he's hard. I think he understands, you know, how long yeah. someone wants to get on and listen to this stuff and, and, right. you know, again, he's he's got to be 70 or thereabouts age-wise, mm -hmm. but God bless him. He's so talented. I, I wanted to ask, uh, who would play <laughs> Sherry Bassin <laughs> in a movie? Or, sorry, what were you saying, Steve? Because I didn't really answer the question. He says, why do I like me on radio and you don't like me? <laughs> I think he was and making answer, a comment. My answer to that is, I think the people that say that hmm. read Sunday and don't read Monday to Friday. 
Because mm-hmm. right. the Monday to Fridays where you get the features and the and the stories about people and you you can look at the book for example and some some of the stories in the book you know you can't help but be touched by by them and, and you know they're not, the, they're not the kind of story you're going to come away with and say oh I hate that guy because that guy's only telling the story he's not even part of of how it's being you know part of the opinion right. at all there is no opinion in those kind of stories. Go ahead, Nate. Yeah, so I was going to say, we meant, you know, there was some Sherry Basson mentioned earlier. Who would play Sherry in a movie? Any actor, living or dead? That's... Oh, Pacino. <laughs> oh, there you go. But he'd have to change his voice a little bit because Sherry's got that sort of, you know, grasp. Although, you know who could also do it? Who Who's the, I forgot, his name is now, Paul Giamatti. Mm. I think he'll yes. play anything. Yeah. <laughs> I think he could do Sherry. If you weren't a sports columnist, what would you be doing? Well, I was intending to go to law school. That was the plan till second year university. I got absolutely, you know, enamored with the school paper at Western. Right. And I loved every moment of being on the school paper at Western. And then I got a job at the London Free Press part time. And I think I knew right then that this was going to be my life. And I remember phoning home to tell my dad, who, you know, had me penciled in to go to law school, that I'm going to be a journalist. And after hearing dial tone, <laughs> I, I get a call back and the first line out of his mouth is, are you prepared to be poor? Mm. <laughs> and, and, you know, 42, he's gone for 20, some of the years. And, and, um, and I think, you know, it's, it's worked out just fine. You wrote about him very nicely too in the, uh, in the book. So when you get the book, people listening out there, you can you hear about Steve's father. Go ahead, Nate. Yeah. What's the, oddest place you ever had to file an article from um i have written from many um like dunkin donuts and and mcdonald's and those kind of places that have wireless on the road when you can't necessarily get to the road but i think about the weirdest story i can remember is they used to have boxing in mississauga in a nightclub called superstars (laughs) and you know i think lennox lewis fought there once and i forget who else fought there um but we're assigned to um, to cover this. I'm there with Rick Fraser from The Star. And here was the problem. They had an office. They had a place to plug in for your computer. And in those days, you couldn't use computers without it being plugged in. There was no power on them. And, uh, and there was a telephone, which you needed to send the story. And I, the phone couldn't reach the computer, and the computer cord isn't long enough to get you to the phone. <laughs> So there's no way of filing other than dictating, but you can't dictate because you can't get your computer close enough to the phone to dictate. So Rick Fraser read my story to me and I dictated it over the phone and I read his story to him and he dictated it for the star over the phone. And that was about as unusual a night um, as I've had. Another one from boxing is we were in Buffalo for a fight and the fight ends and this is when you start to write. The security people and the arena people start taking down the tables at ringside. And they start taking the plugs. And they start <laughs> the lights go out. And suddenly your lights go out and you have no table and you have no pl- like, like it was crazy. Like you had to figure out how how in the heck am I gonna get this done? And somehow you find a way and you and you move on from there. Have you ever used your press pass to attend a concert at Maple Leaf Gardens or at what is now uh, Scotiabank Arena? 
No, but I've thought about it about a million times. <laughs> one of the things that's neat about um, when you're around as long as I've been around is you tend to know the security guys at every door. Mm-hmm. And so they don't even ask you for, you know, I shouldn't mm-hmm. say it because, you know, the world is now filled with passes and more passes and more. They don't even ask for passes most of the time. They just come mm-hmm. on in. And so right. I thought to myself, you know, that that I would do that. And <laughs> I, uh, I think there was a UFC card at, at what was then the Air Canada Centre. And I, uh, I didn't sneak me in, but I brought someone with me. So <laughs> there you go. Now arrest me. Okay. I have a one-year-old niece. How young would a child have to be to live long enough to see a second NHL team in the GTA? I don't believe it will happen much as it should have happened by now. Um, I I just don't believe – the Leafs are very powerful. They don't want another team here. Gary Bettman, as long as he is in charge, is the – almighty and all powerful and he's not crazy about a second team here uh he would like to see maybe a team in houston uh maybe a team in other places um but i don't think i i think you know i'm surprised the players association which is supposedly in the business of making money has not insisted upon there being a second team in toronto and no team in arizona um, it just makes no logical sense to me at all. And I think it should, if it ever happened, it's no, there, there's three teams, you know, you know, there's two in LA. I mean, there's two right. hockey teams in LA. There's three in the greater New York area. Right. Are you telling me there's not more hockey interest in Southern Ontario than there is in those places? It's not even close. That's a good point. Uh, Nate, I think you, you and Steve Simmons are in agreement. Um, so, uh, okay. Um, two left. Um, and you know, we're sports lit. We're trying to be highbrow, but I got to ask it. Cause everyone's going to say you had Steve Simmons on and you didn't ask him this, where are the Leafs headed promised land or 18 wheeler? I don't think either, to be honest. Um, I think they have a team that can compete, uh, or should be able to compete for winning playoff series. Um, I don't know if their goaltending will be able to hold up. If they're in playoff series with teams like Tampa that that have Vasilevsky or the Rangers with Shesterkin or, or or the Islanders with Sorokin, those kind of things. But this is an immensely talented team up top. It's an immensely flawed team in the second half of the roster. But everybody now is flawed, almost except Colorado. And so and, and even there, they're they're kind of questionable in goal. And so every everything, you know. One of these years are going to win a round. I don't know whether they can sustain with this roster, these salary cap circumstances, you know, sustain winning many rounds. But, you know, if they ever get on a roll, they might be able to, you know, get find their way to the Eastern final or that kind of thing. Where, where will they have to get for Dubas to keep his job? Well, I think if Brendan Shanahan was the sole decision maker, the decision would have already been made. Um, but I think right now there's a pull from ownership that hasn't been there in the past that's basically said, you know what, we're not going to put up with this anymore. Um, and so that's why Dubas is, does not have a contract right now. And that's why there's been some front office shuffling of, of people. And, um, and so I think at the absolute least he has to win a round 
because I can't imagine they can give him a contract if they don't. Lastly, it's a lucky life because. I almost, I almost wanted it called I was there because it's all about, you know, being fortunate enough to be at all of these places when all these things happened. And, you know, when you're sitting ringside for Hagler Hearns, like the greatest eight minute fight there ever was, or you're ringside when Holyfield beats up Tyson or, or, you know, whether it's Tiger Woods hitting the first drive of his career or, or Gretzky's last game or all those things. It's an incredible, you know, achievement to be able to do all of these things at the, you know, for one career. And so, yeah, it's been a lucky life. I moved to Calgary. There was no NHL team. You know, a year later, the Flames moved from Atlanta. I moved to Calgary. There was no Calgary Sun. A, a year later, the Calgary Sun was born, and and I got a job there. Um, and so many things, you know, are you, you look at and say good fortune. You know, good fortune that I was at the track the night in Atlanta when Donovan Bailey won the 100. Um, you know, I could have been at, at rowing. I mean, whatever <laughs> was going on that night. Right. Rowing never goes at night. That's a dumb analogy. But – but you understand what I'm saying. So, so some of what you've done has been, boy, um, boy, I've been fortunate to be where I've been at the time. I mean, if if USA scores in overtime against Roberto Luongo, then there is no Sidney Crosby golden goal. Then, then I wasn't there for that great moment in Canadian history. And, you know, it just circumstance plays a part in, in what you've got, what I've gotten to cover and so, you know, yes, a lucky life, but I was there for, for – we, we go to Chicago for the ALCS, Blue Jays and White Sox, and Michael Jordan announces his retirement. <laughs> like, you know, there's, a, there's some freakishness to all, to all of this. You know what, Steve? This is the longest sports lit episode we've ever had. So you're part of our history now too. Wow. And, and, um, I'm, and I'm hungry, so it's dinner time. Perfect. Um, thank you for joining us. Yes, right. thank you so much. Be well, guys.